So let me read Psalms 33, all verses, all 22 verses, and then we will turn to the Lord in prayer. But let me remind you as I read that this is the word of the Lord. And in fact, this is the only time that you will hear specifically and uniquely from God this morning as I read from his word. Psalms 33, verse one, sing for joy in the Lord. O you righteous ones, praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is upright. And all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from one generation to the next. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven he sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all. He who understands all their works. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse, it's a false hope for victory. Nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield for our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. Let's pray. Father, uh, I continue to sing your praises this morning. And from the moment we began early this morning to even now, it is a joy to be among your people. And it is a joy to fall before you in worship and in praise. Father, it is amazing, continues to be, that you have written your word to us. You have spoken clearly to us. And you have seen fit to translate it in our language in order that we might understand what God has said to his people. So, Father, let us realize and recognize the treasure that we have lying in our laps. The first page welcomes us into the earthly as it explains to us everything. And the last page closes into eternity, that which we look forward to. So, Father, as we explore the truths and the principles that we find in your word this morning, I pray for your aid in every way. I 
pray that your spirit might make sense of my fumbling words. And I pray that your spirit might take those words and pierce our hearts with these truths. And I pray that your spirit might bear fruit in our lives to your glory for your great name. Lord, we praise you and we love you. And we ask for all of these things in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen. I always appreciate you guys' effort and all the energy that you put forth to sit willingly and patiently before the instruction of the Word of God. We, we work hard at understanding. But we know at that point we're only halfway done. There's a lot of work left to do because we have to take our understanding and then we have to work hard at applying what we've learned from God or it does us very little good at all. It's really a two-step process. That's what I love about the Psalms. I've said this many times on Sunday night. The psalmist, who's usually David, at least all the Psalms that we've been through so far, shows us very clearly how to take principles, truths, doctrines from Scripture and apply them to everyday life. If you ever want to know how this is done, watch David in the Psalms and he'll teach you how to take God's Word and weave it into the fabric of your life. I say things like this, the Psalms is doctrine made practical or doctrine made applicable. In other words, it's, it's just doctrine made alive to live. The mistake that is often too made, often made, often too made, often, often, often made. It is the truth that sacri- or it is the truth rather that we rather have experiences than we had doctrines. We forsake doctrines for some reason just for the sake of the experience. In other words, what I'm trying to say is we crave the experiential, sometimes at the cost of understanding objective truth. Now, I don't want to knock experience. That is part of the process. Experience is good and it is necessary, but it must be guided by Scripture or it does not know where it will go. Without truth, without these principles in Scripture, experience is unable to run a distinguishable course. I always use a sailboat analogy because I love sailing so much. And it is fun to get out on the boat and allow the wind to catch your sails and just go across the water. But invariably, I fix my eyes on a point on the water or on the shore And now all of a sudden I have purpose, I have a course, and I have to begin to change my experience and not let my experience sweep me along, but I have to take my experience and be guided along now because I have a path. And so I trim the sails, I adjust my weight, I make sure the dagger board's at the proper length underneath the boat, and then I begin to actually manipulate or use the rudder to guide this point that I want to go to. And that's why racing was my thing. You got three points and you got to get them right and you got to get them fast. And so you use the experience, the wonder and the awe of the wind blowing and the water and the resistance and everything that's going on. And you grab a hold of all that experience and you govern it and you guide it by the principles that run that boat. And it's really fun when you win because you did it well. And so that's what we have to understand about Scripture. Experience is awesome for the child of God to get swept up by the spirit of God to be driven along and sense his presence and sense his power and sense his moving. 
But at the same time, we have to remember his word or we'll get swept off in our undiscernible directions and have no purpose or no significance whatsoever. We'll just have had a great day and not be driven more toward Christ. So again, that's what Psalms does. It helps us understand these truths. Again, here's another example for you. We can make two errors, and I'll put it in the context of football if you don't like sailing. Experience without truth is like a stadium full of people celebrating, shouting and yelling and cheering and screaming, but there's absolutely no one on the field to watch. It's just experience. Truth, on the other hand, without experience is like a team that is always practicing, always preparing, but never schedules a game to play on the field. And eventually you get bored. So both of them, we need both of them. Now, when we look at Psalms 33, it's got so many wonderful things going on, but both you've got the experience and you've got the truth. In verses 4 through 19, and I'll get into more of this tonight, you find that this psalm is profoundly theological. He runs from verses 4 through 19 talking about God. And so we begin to understand that all of our experiences has to have this foundation and this force that moves us along, and it is God and His character. Psalm is also instructional, and I want to talk much about this either this morning or tonight. It teaches us a great deal about genuine worship. Look at verses 1 through 3. Sing for joy in the Lord, you righteous ones. Praise is becoming. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with the harp. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. First three verses, he begins by teaching us about worship. And so we've got much to talk about there. And then lastly, it is very experiential. That's the only way you can describe joy. Joy is experience. And David tells us not only where we find joy, but how to acquire joy. In other words, if I told you where a treasure was, but I didn't tell you how to dig it up, what good would the treasure be, right? So even though as believers, you might understand very clearly, oh, I understand from the very first verse, joy is in the Lord. Well, you won't know till the end how you lay hands on that joy and appropriate it for your own life. Notice with me verse one, sing for joy in the Lord. And now notice with me at the end of it, verse 21, our heart rejoices in him. So it begins and ends with joy. And the first time I preached that, I didn't notice that. It's about joy, okay? And when you think about that, just drawing away from the text, we're, we're created with a hunger. Really, we are with a hunger for joy. Now, I know for some, life has left them more accustomed to grumbling and complaining about everything under the sun, right? But I guarantee you that's not really where they want to be. I don't think anyone wants to be there. I think they just don't know how to get out of there and experience the joy that the Lord has for us in him. All of us had rather have a heart filled with joy. But again, most of us just don't know how to have that sort of thing. So we're recreated with a hunger for joy, but the effect of our fallen nature has been absolutely devastating on us for true joy because we're convinced about two things that are terribly wrong. Number one, we are convinced that we can find joy for ourselves. And secondly, we are convinced that we can find joy in ourselves. And so we don't even have 
a suitable playbook to even begin to play the game of pursuing joy. Most look for joy in circumstances. And this should be deeply convicting for you. Most look for joy in circumstances, comfort, pleasures, wealth, health, or simply a day that goes your way. And if you can get any of those things, you feel all of a sudden joyful and you think you've acquired joy, but you haven't acquired joy at all. Because when your circumstances change, your joy leaves. When your health fails, your joy is gone. When your checkbook's broke, where did it go? And the reality is you never had it. Many look for joy in themselves. They look inwardly. They try to exalt themselves. They try to accomplish everything, everything. And we had to be careful with this when we were raising our kids. And you need to be careful with this too. Don't make them accomplish everything. There's no joy in that. There's only exhaustion in that. And besides, even if they do accomplish everything and wind up in this life with 12 degrees and 12 jobs and 12 awards for all 12 things they ever touched. It's empty. It is not joyful. Almost all of us are convinced that there is joy in sin. And until Jesus comes back, it's going to be very difficult to change your mind. We are convinced that one more time, one more thing, one more whatever it may be, that next one will bring, bring pleasure and joy to my soul. But it never does. One more car, one more house, one more job, one more raise, one more relationship, one more whatever. We are absolutely convinced if we could cross that line, we'd be filled with joy. But you have to understand that is nothing more than chasing your tail. And if you ever do catch it, you're going to find out that it tastes really bad. And it wasn't worth chasing to begin with. On top of all of that, and all of that is a result of our fallen nature, Satan works tirelessly to keep us off the trail that leads to true joy. I mean, if it were not for the grace of God, joy might as well be a lost treasure buried at the bottom of the sea because no one could ever really find true biblical joy. So this is the purpose of the Psalms. David's trying to explain two things to us. Number one, where it is found. And then secondly, how you acquire it. Again, the treasure. I can tell you where it is, but I've also got to tell you how to get it so you can have it. I found this fascinating because we're about to go to Romans. And we will eventually, Lord willing, in my lifetime, reach Romans chapter 14. And in Romans 14, Paul talks about the kingdom of God. And these are the three words that he uses to describe the kingdom of God. He says, number one, the kingdom of God is about righteousness. And certainly we would say amen to that because it is the righteousness of Christ that redeems us and justifies us before God. And we are with, with God. We will live and walk in absolute, complete righteousness. We will once and for all be blameless. Secondly, Paul says the kingdom of God is about peace. And certainly through the gospel, not only do we have peace with God, but we also have peace with our brothers and sisters. But thirdly, was surprising to me. He says the kingdom of God is about joy in the Holy Spirit. 
And that too will be an experience that you will never get over, never get past and never fall short of. You will be absolutely filled with everlasting joy for all time, forever and ever. Amen. That is the kingdom of God. So we really need to focus on this issue of joy. Now, notice with me, verse one, it's primary focus. Joy is where it is found. Sing for joy, David says, in the Lord, in the Lord. That is it. So no matter how hard or how hard we try to find joy in almost everything else, it is only found in the Lord because God alone is the source of true joy. You ever thought about why that is? Why didn't he put joy in food? You know, I think I find great joy in food. And then we pick up Abby over in what shopping center were we in? Bridge Street. And we stop by a restaurant to get something to eat. And by the time I get home, I find out joy is not found in food. And when I get up at two o'clock in the morning, I got to take something. Joy was not found in that food. Why does he put it in relationships? Because I think it might be right. I'm convinced I've had kids and then they turned three and I realized, OK, joy is not in kids. Right. They say it's in grandkids. And so I'm waiting. Maybe joy will be in the grandkids. But at the end of the day, I know it's not going to be. They say joy can be from financial success. Well, let me tell you, I've been there and I've never been as joyless in all my life as in that time because I knew that God had something else for me to do. You see, God puts joy only in himself because he alone is unchanging, unshakable and immovable. And so watch this. If we find our joy in God, where can our joy ever go? Nowhere. It will always remain because God always remains. And therefore, God has put joy within himself and he offers it to those who seek him. Paul, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by Paul. He picks up, this is the way Paul writes the New Testament. And he wrote the majority of the New Testament. He writes the New Testament based on Old Testament principles. All of his theology comes from the Old Testament. And so in my mind, I have to wonder when he wrote Philippians 4, 4, if he was thinking about Psalms 33. Because what does Paul say in Philippians 4? Rejoice in the Lord always, always. See, Paul's trying to instruct the church. You need joy. But guys, there's only one place you're ever going to find joy, and that is in the Lord. Therefore, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Don't ever try to find it anywhere else. Why is it necessary for us to understand this again? I'm going to skip some of these things, and I'll pick them back up tonight. But listen to this. I gave this some thought this week. We think we find joy in sin, but when we come to the end of our sin, we find brokenness, emptiness, and shame. Ever been there? You think it's going to make me feel good, and you get to the end of it, and you feel shamed. You feel absolutely shameful. We think we can find it in ourselves by achieving things, and then we get to the end of ourselves, and we find disappointment and despair. I remember graduating Auburn Pharmacy School, and I thought that was going to be a great day. And then I realized all they did was hand me a piece of paper 
that my dad paid several thousands of dollars for. And now I had to go to work. And it was a huge letdown. It was not nearly as fulfilling as I thought it was going to be. When we come to the end of our health, we find fear and frustration. But when we come to any such end, and yet our joy is in the Lord, we find peace, hope, and confidence because God is unchanging and so will our joy be. Now, let me skip some down and try to pick this back up. And it may not make a little much sense, but I'll plug the parts back in tonight. So let me sum up all of this that I'll say tonight. We'd better learn how to find our joy in God. Because judgment is coming soon. And if joy is in our heart, it will be a moment of joy for us who are in the Lord. Now, the psalm begins with joy, but it also begins with the call of worship. So let me sh shift gears just a little bit. Notice again, verse one, sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. And you have to realize that only the righteous are called to worship. Worship is only for a particular group of people. Now, everywhere you go, and I hope you have opportunities to go and, and see Tyler and Wallace and Cody and Laura and Mexico and various places, but everywhere you go, there is the worship of God's plural little G. Every nation, every peoples are lifting their voices up in praise to some little G God. But the worship of the one true God who created the heavens and the earth, and David will get to that in that Psalms, and we'll get to that tonight. The worship of that God was only created for a particular group of people, and that is the church. You alone have the privilege and the right to come before God and be accepted by God. Isn't that amazing? Jesus says this in John 4, an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And then listen to what the Lord says. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. And so the only ones that have been equipped for worship, the only ones that God accepts for worship, are those who come to him through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the ones who have been sanctified and sealed by the spirit of God himself. Those are the ones that are called to come and worship. Now, worship is both a duty and a privilege. Notice again, verse one, the second part, praise is becoming to the upright. It is suitable. It is lovely. That word means fitting. A few of us went to a, is it a gala, a gala? We got both going. We went to something the other night. And it was suitable for us to dress a particular way. And so all the girls in our, on our table were dressed up so lovely, had their hair fixed, had new outfits on. They were just a beautiful sight to see, right? And so all of us guys were staring at our wives. It was fitting for us to get dressed up that way because of the event, right? It, it was suitable. That's kind of this word. This word means it is becoming or it's suitable or it's fitting for the upright or the saved to call out to God in worship. It is suitable. We have been purchased by the blood of the son. It is fitting there for us to lift up our voices in praise to God. It is the very thing that we're designed to do. And it's the very thing that we will forever do, except we will do it together when all nations and every tongue and every tribe are gathered around the throne. Remember what we say, 
The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So we have joy and we have worship. And that's why we were made. But David's giving us clear instructions here about the type of worship that pleases the Lord. And he runs through five commands or five imperatives. So notice with me real quickly. Verse one, sing. Verse two, give thanks. Second part of verse two, sing praises. Verse three, sing to him a new song. Second part of verse three, play skillfully, he says, with a shout of joy. So let me start with play skillfully and we'll work our way back up. Play skillfully literally means to be good. That's what that word means. Be good at it. It's not random. It's not unpracticed. It's not to play with indistinguishable sounds. It's not noise. It's not loud noise, but it's ordered. It's arranged and it's beautiful. That's what the spirit of God does. Sometimes we get this idea that randomness somehow is spirit led. And if I had the ability and I don't, I will show you some of this tonight. The arrangement of this psalm that was written by the spirit of God has so much order. It's unbelievable. He'll take the same root word and keep using it and put various prefix suffixes on the end to drive the psalm along. It is as ordered as ordered can be in this psalm. And it's a call to worship. And so in the midst of this, he says, play skillfully. In other words, arrange it, make it beautiful, make it helpful to lift our voices and our praise up to God. Play skillfully with a lyre, which is a stringed instrument. Play skillfully with a harp of 10 strings and do well when you do so. And notice this at the end of that uh, verse three, play skillful with a shout of joy. Now, I find this fascinating this shout is literally a sound, a loud sound, like a trumpet blast, this word could be used, or a battle cry. I think it's best understood as a cry of jubilation. It's a shout, listen, that's motivated by joy, not by recognition within a crowd. So many just want to shout to be recognized. But that's not what David's talking about. He's wanting us to shout for joy and to be filled with jubilation for the things that God has done. It's not uncontrolled. Uncontrolled worship is not found in the scriptures, nor does it glorify God. This is controlled worship and a controlled shout for, for joy with these instruments that are playing beautifully and skillfully. You have to remember the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's the work of the Spirit of God. And so that's what we see here in this psalm. Pagans lack self-control. Their worship is vain. Christians play skillfully with a controlled shout of jubilation. Now notice in verse 1, Verse one, and I'll talk more about this tonight. Look, I tell you, you're in 33.1. Just look up one verse to 32.11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout. That's the word renan in Hebrew, and it's translated here, shout for joy. Now, look down in verse one and verse 33. Renan, same word, except they translate it, sing for joy. And again, it's the word shout. It could be translated, shout for joy in the Lord. 
Look down in verse three, sing to him a new song, play skillfully with a shout of joy. It's a different word, but when you look at both of these words, you know what he's describing in worship? Very lively worship. He's trying to teach us that worship should be lively. So here's my question for you this morning. Why is it so often dead? Why is it so often dead? And I'll give you three reasons and we'll be done this morning. Reason number one, it's without true joy. Worship is dead because joy is misplaced. It's not in the Lord. It's in circumstances. And so when we come in here to worship, basically our attitude toward God is going to be reflective of the kind of week that we've had. Worse yet, the kind of mourning that we've had getting our family ready and getting here. So if we've had a bad week, if we've had a tough week, if we've had a tiring week, if we had difficulty getting the kids ready, we're going to express that attitude toward God because we're not in a good place. You see why joy can't be in any of those things? Listen, joy is the heart of worship. And so if our joy is not in the Lord, it doesn't matter how loud you sing or the smile on your face. All of that is just fancy shirts and khakis. Joy is deep seated in the soul. And when your joy is in God, and I'll tell you how to dig that treasure up tonight. But when your joy is in God, your worship is going to be pleasing to God because you're going to sing for joy in the Lord. And until we learn to do that, worship might be loud, might be fun, might be interesting, might be entertaining, but it's going to be dead. Second reason why worship is so dead is because it's off center. Rather than being God centered, it is man centered. That's everywhere. That's in every American church and probably in every church across the world. We structure worship to what pleases the audience. I used to be a part of church planning groups and I'd quit that on Lord willing. I'll never go back to that because they tell you how to grow a church based on worship and they'll do the demographics and they'll figure out what sort of worship is going to be pleasing to the congregation in the area that you're in, what type of music, what type of singing, what type of instruments. And they'll encourage you to take it in that direction so they'll be drawn into your church in worship. That's not worship. That's entertainment. If you've got to have that to worship God, you're not focused on the thing or the person that you're supposed to be focused on. You're focused on yourself. If you're like, well, I can't sing unless it's this song. Well, I can't sing unless Chris is singing it. Well, I can't sing unless it's just the piano. Well, I don't want to worship unless it's the organ. I don't want to worship unless Rob's playing the drums or I can't worship if Rob's playing the drums. All of that's tradition. All of that's foolishness. That is not worship. You're worshiping yourself because you're in the middle of that. When God should be in the middle of all of our worship. You know, I found myself worshiping God in Rwanda, unable to speak their language. I had no idea what they were saying. They were playing with one instrument and it was a deer skin stretched across a wooden bowl that they had made. And one lady had one stick playing that drum just to make some sort of beat. 
And I asked the elder and translator next to me, what are they saying? And he, he gave me a Psalms. He said, we just sing the Psalms over here or we sing the word of God. And I'm like, I'm good. I can worship. Because I don't need any of that stuff. In fact, my heart has grown in a bad place toward that stuff. I can't stand that. I can't stand somebody to get up here and be so talented and the attention is drawn toward them or to play their music a little too well or use their voices in emotional ways to manipulate you. I can't stand any of that. And if, God forbid if they break out some sort of fog, I'll probably drag them off the stage. We are pagans in our worship. Because we think, oh, this will draw a crowd. I'm not interested in a crowd. I'm interested in drawing the pleasure of God. That's biblical worship. That's why he says, sing for joy in the Lord. Look, look what he says in verse 4. Let me start at 3 for context. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. And here's why. For the word of the Lord is upright and true. All his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. See verse 4, first word 4. That's the word because. So I want you to sing. I want you to play skillfully. I want you to shout for joy because of God and who he is. He just summed up the person of God. His word is true. His works, unimaginable. And his person, oh, he's full of righteousness and justice. Therefore, sing for joy in the Lord and shout praises to him because of who he is. That's worship. It's stimulated, it's motivated by who God is and not what anybody is doing on the stage to entertain you. I'll talk more about this tonight, but there was an argument in the church for a thousand years about whether or not there should be musical instruments on the stage. And the first time musical instruments were on the stage in the Christian church was the year 1250. This is an argument that went on for a long time. And there were some good reasons for that. It has a tendency to draw your attention away from God. Third reason is, and we'll conclude with this is, I want you to see this. Worship is dead if it's without joy in God. Worship is dead if it's man-centered rather than God-centered. And worship is dead if it's old, if it's old. Look at verse 3. Sing to him a new song. This is a very interesting phrase. It's used nine times in Scripture, new song, okay? Not old song, but a new song. I find it interesting in Revelations, I was going to call Johnny this week, two times new song is used in Revelations and we're not singing it. There are other groups who are singing this new song that we find in Revelations. Nine times we find it in the Psalms, but I want you to turn to the right to the book of Isaiah so you can catch the significance of what it means to sing a new song. So turn to Isaiah 42. Let me read 10 passages for you and you'll go, oh, I get that. And then we'll say a few more things and pray. Isaiah 42. Look at verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 10 and I'll do it somewhat quickly. God says, Behold my servant. He's talking about the Christ. Whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. 
I have put my spirit upon him. I will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor will he make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he'll not break, a dimly burning wick he'll not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says the God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and the spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and I will watch over you. I will appoint you, he says to the son, as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. I will send you to open blind eyes and to bring prisoners out from the dungeons and to those who dwell in darkness from prison. I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Notice verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praise from the end of the earth. You get the idea of what a new song is? We sing a new song when God has done new things. When we have fresh experiences of the grace of God, our hearts are filled with joy because we've understood more about God and we've seen more of his faithfulness at work in our hearts and lives. And therefore we come to worship and we have a new song to sing because God has done something new in our life, our family's life or in our church. It's to celebrate a new and fresh work. Steve puts it this way. New mercies should bring new music. Plumer says this. New mercy should produce new praises. We must learn to notice the new ways which God has manifested his grace in our lives. But the problem is, a lot of times we're just living in the past. And we don't have fresh encounters of the grace of God and the power of God in our life. I'm pretty convinced Chris and Melissa got a new song to sing. You know? God's been doing something fresh and exciting in their lives to their own kids. And so they have a renewed sense of joy. Pretty soon I'm going to have to drop this idea about their missionaries going to Thailand or missionaries going to South Korea and, and Jordan going down there to pastor church because it's going to become old. And we want to see God do fresh things. It's not as though I'm not thankful, but we constantly want to see the fresh hand of God at, move, at moving in our lives in order that we might sing a new song. Let me give you two things and then we'll pray. My trip to Rwanda, I saw really what it meant to sing a new song. And I know I've shared this story with you before. You'll probably remember. But there was a girl there who had been bitten by a poisonous snake. No options for hospitals there. We just got to wait and see how this thing goes. And God delivers her from death from that bite of a snake. And so when we were in church on that Sunday, she got up, Right. And she shared her testimony and she said, I've written a new song to the Lord. And she got up there and she sang and all their songs have dances. So she had a new dance. And so she sang her new song of deliverance from God and she danced her new dance because God had delivered her from death. And I'm like, that's a new song. That's a new song. And we need to do those sort of things. We need to watch for the hand of God and the grace of God to move so our worship can be renewed and revived. It's hard to be 
joyful in the Lord and shout exclamations to him when we hadn't seen him do anything. Because we've been too busy or not paying attention to what's been going on. Thankfully, this church does. I tell you, I was shouting this week and I think Rob can testify to me for this. You don't have to turn there, but we finally finished Jude. And Jude is a horrible book. It's so heavy. I mean, you get through the almost the whole first 23 chapters and you're like, Jude, what are you doing, man? You're wrecking my life. You're putting all this burden on me. And the church is in such a short. And he goes through seven illustrations of these wicked people that have worked their way or wormed their way into the church. And you're like, man, this is heavy. This is heavy. What are you doing? And Jude's like, don't worry. I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to turn you back to God. And so for the last two verses, Jude's like, let me take you back to joy. And I'll leave you there. I just wanted you to know. And so this is how he concludes. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time now and forevermore. Amen. Jesus, like I got to talk to you about some very hard, painful, difficult things. but I'm going to take you back to God because I know it's the only place that you're going to find joy. So back we go. And I won't get into it, but when I understood that word, katayan opion, how God looks down in us and sees us as blameless, I had a new song in my heart. I'm like, that's just crazy good right there. Guys, we want worship. We want joy. I'll finish joy tonight. But we want biblical, true worship. And just to remind you, we can't have it if you're happy about your circumstances and your week and you feel good. That's not what we're looking for. We're looking for joy that is seated in the Lord. We can't have worship if we're man-centered and not God-centered. We can't have worship if you're saying, well, when they sing my song, I'll sing. Please, no. And then lastly, our worship can be made alive again when we've got a new song in our heart because God is doing new things among us. Let's pray.